You are listening to the Converge Media Network, uplifting our voices. Prosperity in Black America. What will this require? Is Black business prospering? Are we reaching women and minority-owned businesses? How do we achieve earning parity for wealth for our families? I'm that provocateur of change. I am Cindy Bright. Welcome to Heartbeat. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Heartbeat. Thank you for joining me this evening. Last week's show I had, was just incredible. And I'm bringing that back up because last week's show has not ended yet. So let me first say to all of you who reached out to me post that show, including calls from across the country from black women who are all saying this has happened to me, too. This is what we're dealing with. Also, when will we start to address what's really at play? And so I want to honor all the black women who deal with this very issue of racism in corporate America, of being publicly terminated, of being ridiculed in the press or attempted to be in order to tell a narrative or perpetuate a narrative about us as black people and, and black women specifically. Let me comment on a couple things first before we go into the show tonight. So first off, you know, I read the articles in the Seattle Times. Let me just say to the Seattle Times, please do a better job of not confusing black people and using one black woman's name when it's actually another black woman's name. So I you know, we've lived with the fact that you can't tell us apart. And maybe the reason behind that is because all of our stories are the same. And so you confuse one story for the other. But um, the name correction did get made in the Seattle Times. Um, but the story and the narratives that are in the story, you know, my reaction to it is um, it's a copy and paste job, right? It's every black woman who gets called to the carpet because she's to fill in the blank, right? The things that they said in the paper around um, things such as, you know, creating a culture uh, of fear or whatever the words is that they use, that's a very common thing attached to strong black women that when we speak truth and talk truth, then we're all of a sudden intimidating. And let me just ask the question, like why do we have to conduct investigations every time there's an issue with a black woman? Like, do we do those investigations on all the other folks? Do we report them the way we do black people and black women? Is this just a manifestation of the plantation of which we, let me just say, this is not a white and black issue. This is also a black and black issue. This is a, I'm gonna take her down, possibly, right? The comments in that article about her comments around light-skinned Hispanic, I, I wasn't there for those comments if they were in fact made, but let me, let me share something with you because I think this is important. You know, my own son, I'm a black woman, I'm a mixed woman. My son, who is white passing, right? My son is so light skinned. Most people don't know. Now, let me say that different. White folks don't know he's black. He's got black in him. But he's been subject to a lot of, um, he's been exposed to a lot of these kind of conversations of what's comfortable when black people are not around, I would say. But the point to this is that, 
he's white passing. And when you are white passing, your experience is very, very different than people who have darker skin. Now, I'm a light skinned woman. And you heard last week, Dr. J and I talking about, you know, both of us who have collectively had the same experience. And it's, I would say it's to the degree of which it is done to each other, right? And so this is a problem in our communities. And let me also say, I'm not, we're not done with this topic. Like this is not a one and done, this is not one and done. And we're also not going to just say, okay, Dr. J is fired. And so let's just hire the next person. Let's just focus on getting the right person in and let's keep it moving. No, mm-mm. We're at a tipping point because the calls that I have gotten across this country, not just Washington state, across this country, black women are saying we are done. We are done with what is being done to us. We deserve the right to have due process, justice. Even if there's issues there, how do we treat people how we're treating people, how we're treating black people, black women is real. And no longer are the days. Let me also make a comment on this before I introduce my guest in, because I'm kind of preaching a little bit tonight, but it has me stirred up as much as every other black woman in this country. We are tired of being put in this position and then having people around to say, okay, let's just move on. We're not moving on. We're going to deal with this issue head on with what is happening to us and we are going to get justice and we are going to face colorism and racism and workplace trauma and the things that are happening to us because without a voice and advocacy to make things better, nothing's going to change. We need to address the elephant in the room. Tonight I welcome our guest, he is the author of the book, Addressing the Elephant in the Room. Let me welcome in Philip Jacobs here with us this evening. Philip, welcome to Heartbeat again. You were on with me about a year ago right yeah. now. So welcome to the show tonight. I'm going to show your book. Have you all read this book? This book is a powerful book. And Philip, I'm going to let you start to talk about why you decided to write this book. Let's just start there. Definitely. Well, I just want to say, first and foremost, it's good to see you. Um, and I know that the the circumstances in which we're meeting in are not um, obviously the most ideal, but um, it's good to see you and it's good to be seen. Um, so I wrote Elephant in the Room um, really as a a way of trying to help folks along in terms of us having conversations about race in the workplace that can lead to systemic change. Not just having conversations for conversation's sake, but with there being um, a real outcome or outcomes that would come out of that. Um, and so I wrote it from a, a narrative standpoint. So it almost reads like a screenplay or like a movie would because I feel like a lot of the the racial equity books, the DEI books that I've, I've read, um, it, it they deal with very difficult topics that many folks don't want to deal with. Right. And so I wanted to make something where it could be relatable to people where they could, um, they could get the information in a digestible way. Um, but at the same time, it would be compelling enough for them to want to continue reading it even after they get, you know, get hit with some of that, that real truth, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, that's, that's the, that's the impetus behind it. It is uh, a compelling book. It does read like a screenplay. 
um, it talks about, these are my words, but kind of like the experience that you talk about in the beginning of the book, right? Where we have to constantly deal with these microaggressions, the way that actually worthy or have things or um, this issue around thinking that us as black people are so far down on the totem pole that they continue to talk to us and actually disrespect us to our face. And then in organizations, we have to come into organizations and we have to walk a fine line of trying to influence and trying to not harm or create. I think Dr. J said it well last week when she said, you know, try not to, you know, don't raise our voice too high, you know, don't do things that create, like, is that been your experience also where you are walking a fine line with how you show up every day? And do you feel that being showing up authentically is actually accepted? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think in the past, I've definitely had that experience where I had to be mindful of how I moved. You know, we call it code switching, right? Where you, you gotta, you can't speak with as much bass in your voice maybe, <laughs> right? Or, you know, you just, you're very conscientious of how you show up and, and how other people perceive you. Um, and so that was my experience, but, you know, I think I've gotten to the place now. And part of that has been because I've started my own company uh, that is giving me the freedom to really show up as I am. And I think because I've, I've gone through enough and I've kind of seen different angles. Um, and I'm, I'm not even gonna lie. I think I'm fortunate in many ways because of some of the relationships that I've built and just, um, you know, I, I think some of the ideas that I, I've, I've gotten that have kind of put me in a certain space. I even think financially, uh, well, I'm just showing up as me now. And if I can't show up as me, um, more than likely, I'm not going to be in that space for a length of time where I'm not going to show up at all. And am I incorrect? Are you a millennial? I am. Yeah. So I'm old and <laughs> I'm hashtag older woman and I've gotten to the same place as you. So it, and I raise that because I believe it's important because you represent a generation of talent and people that have just said, I'm done. Like, I'm not going to be in these organizations while they continue to perpetuate that we just don't have enough people in our talent pool. L let's talk about talent pools and what that actually looks like. I want to share an Instagram clip of what's happening inside of organizations and what an actual black recruiter said about this. Let's show that. Walk into the room and very rarely does it look like, you know, anyone who reflects my community or my friends or my circle. Uh, and so I decided, you know, hell, focus group of one, team of one, I'm gonna just hire myself again and again and again and again and again. The third one, it was like everybody kind of paused. And then by the time the fourth one came along, yeah, I got the call, which was like, is got there the anything, call HR, yeah, yeah, HR. yeah, is there anything wrong with the candidates that we are sending you? <laughs> oh, no. And I was like, no, totally fine. They're like, well, it seems as if you're hiring a certain type of person. And I was like, yes, you are correct. <laughs> and then they were like, well, is there any way that we can help to make sure that we're looking at a broad range of candidates so that you have a wider pool of people to hire? And I was like, did you tell homeboy down the hall that? Mm -hmm. Did you tell him that he shouldn't hire any more white men? Because I don't think so. Right. I mean, isn't that real? Isn't that to all of us who work in corporate America and work in business that 
we go out to try to advance DEI work, right? And then as soon as we start to make progress, let's take it back to last week's conversation. As soon as we start to make progress, then there becomes a challenge to us, right? You know, back to just for a moment, um, one of the issues that the Seattle Times published about Dr. J this week, and I actually chuckled out loud when I read it because if they understood what really goes on in these organizations, they had said something about, you know, like she hadn't spent her budget yet, right? Like, first off, how many of us get chastised for not spending money, right? Usually it's the polar opposite, but let's also bring up the fact that the fiscal year isn't over until June the 30th. And so holding her accountable to something when she was actually out dealing with her mental health and saying her budget's not spent yet. And everybody knows, anybody, any of us who have sat in the C-suites or in these executive positions knows that it's in the month of June that that starts to happen where budgets get spent up and people start to spend it so that they have the allocation for the following year. So when I read those kind of things, and when you hear the video that I just said, it's just creating a narrative because the narrative around us is that there's always something wrong with us. And when they don't have anything over our heads, they find it and create it. And I think we need to start paying closer attention to all of these allegations that get made against other people, other black people, because the pattern of behavior, this is not a failure of Dr. J, this is a failure of the leadership in the state of Washington. I'm saying that because when you bring us in, any organization, when you bring a DEI champion in, let's talk about what that's creating across the country because you can look at it in Florida and see what's happening when we start to make progress. Philip, you worked in corporate America, correct? I did. And you were also the executive director of the Washington Employers for Racial Equity. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with what Washington Employers for Racial Equity is, it's corporate America. Just go on to employersforequity.org and look at every major company that signed up and sent us all emails in 2020 when George Floyd died. But let's talk about you left within 12 months. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the black man experience, because I want to understand, you can tell I'm a little fired up tonight, but what happens when black men enter positions of power? What happened yeah, there? I, I mean, I think I think it's a similar dynamic um, in, in many instances. I think that people, especially those that have been in power for a long time, part of the status quo, whatever you want to say, we could say white folks or we could say those that have been in power, whatever. Um, I think many, many people that have been in those positions for a long time, they like the idea or the sound of change and for there to be more equity. But when it comes down to actually like doing the work and when it gets messy, that's when all bets are off and things, you know, got to shift, you know. Um, and so I, I think it, it, it's a similar experience. You know, I think if you're a black person and you ho you hold a certain title, there's some, some weight behind your name or some influence that comes with that. People are looking at you as a leader. Immediately, you have a target on your back, you know, mm -hmm. and if you do anything wrong, like, you know, it could be the smallest thing. Um, there's no safety net typically for us. We got to walk that tightrope, you know, if you prefer, if you if you're going to do that. There's some people that are built for that. They, they know how to navigate them systems. Um, I always joke and say maybe I just didn't have enough gray hair yet to, to know, you know, all the pitfalls and things of that nature. Um, but, you know, 
I'm, you know, I'm not angry or bitter or nothing like that. Um, you know, but I, you know, it, it's, it's typical, you know, and I think especially when you talk about like racial equity work in and of itself, um, it's, I think it's problematic to start with that those who don't, who have the, who, who have the least amount of experience around lived experience in terms of racism, when they're the ones that are, that have the budgets, when they're the ones that are calling the shots and making the decisions. To me, that's, that's a recipe for disaster and ineffectiveness. Mm. And I think that's typically what we see, why, where, um, where we get put in these positions where the higher ups, the ones that we're answering to, um, they don't they don't know what's going on with black people and black and brown people in our experiences in our day to day, you know, lives or whatnot. Um, and even the discrepancies that we face, they might have data, but they don't have real world knowledge. So they're making decisions from a very detached standpoint. So it's, it's nothing for them to let somebody go or cut somebody off, um, even if they are effective, you know, in, in those positions. So, you know, I'm not no, but no, nothing different. It, it, it's pretty much the same thing. So in your in that tenure time, were you were you aiming to hold those CEOs accountable to make the right decisions? And were they did I just hear you correctly? Were they skirting that or not wanting to tackle kind of what's really going on? Well, I think in I, from my perspective, I do think that there was a legitimate desire to hold CEOs accountable. I do think that, but I don't think that there was necessarily always the willpower to see it all the way through or to do it in a way that would really push some of those CEOs to make the right decisions. Because I think we know as a community and history serves us that any progress that we've made in this country concerning racial equity, it has always been making people uncomfortable mm -hmm. and pushing lines. It's never been, you know, um, uh, in in the most desirable circumstances or ideal circumstances has always been based off of some bloodshed or some traumatic events or history, you know. And so the the whole deal with um, you know the, the the murder of George Floyd that was a strong catalyst for us to push for. But when you start getting into those upper echelons, there's a there's so much bureaucracy. There's so there's so much politics. There's so many you know. Uh, 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 conversations going on behind the scenes, ones that I haven't even been privy to that um, that really dictate how a lot of those those decisions get made. And so sometimes what happens is by the time those decisions do get made, they're so watered down that they're not even effective, you know. So. Um, so I, you know, the, I, I guess uh, making a, a long story longer is to say that I do think that there was a, a genuine desire maybe initially for some of that, that accountability to be there. But I think the longer that you have those conversations and, and you don't really have a strong incentive to make that, make that stance, um, it's going to wither away. Correct. And, you know, there's this, um, I mean, you know this, I spent 30 years in corporate America, and there's also this other book, in case you haven't seen it, that I don't know, this woman named Cindy Bright wrote, but uh, chapter two actually talks about the Ten Commandments of the GOB, right, the good old boys, and commandment number one is, thou shalt protect thy white man, and that is exactly what we see happen in every situation, because as you're talking, Philip, 
they are incented to hire the chief equity officer, to hire the first chief diversity officer. And the first person that gets blamed when they start driving change is that chief diversity officer, right? And then what happens is they activate the actual system. In this particular instance, you know, they hire a law firm, a black woman owned law firm to go out and take down another black woman and then use that as a shield to say, um, oh, it can't be racism because we hire, you know, and so this whole other notion of, you know, we have to protect the governor, we have to protect the white men in charge, we have to build cases that are air solid tight so that, you know, in this case, I'm not sure they accomplish that because there's too much outcry happening over and it doesn't feel right or smell right. And I'm not the only person who thinks that. There is an outcry happening now. And oh, by the way, the very people who make these decisions now need our votes. They now need us to go out and mobilize for them. And oh, by the way, there are now conversations about black people saying, we are abstaining from voting this next election cycle because we're tired of being used up. We're tired of being used to go mobilize in the street and advocate and doorbell and let's get on the heartbeat and push our campaigns when you don't protect us. And so we're watching the debt you know, ceiling and the fact that student debt is not being, it's thrown away now. These are all issues that impact black women. And so um, this pressure feels like it's mounting right now. I know I've personally received some pressure. Don't do the show. Don't talk about this. Don't, you know, Cindy, like, when are we going to get to the point where, let me say that different. We are past that point. We are past the point of saying, because I know I'm not letting up off the throttle. And I know many of the black women I have been talking to nonstop are saying, we're not, this is, it's time to do something different. Like we cannot continue in this vein and we certainly cannot continue to have business, business saying, okay, we did this while it was popular because we had to, because there was social outcry. Do you think Philip that we have a social outcry happening now again with black people? I don't think it's to the level that it was when George Floyd got murdered. And I think, I, you know, I, obviously I can't speak for all black people, but I think many of us are just we're fatigued and we've become desensitized because we're seeing uh, so many atrocities committed against us that it's like after at some point it's, it's almost like you get used to it, unfortunately, you know, and I know that when I see a new hashtag or I see somebody else get murdered, it's just like another one. It's like we were just dealing with this one and now this has come up, you know, and so I think it just takes a toll on our soul, you know, mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I knew when I got into the position of where the executive director role, I knew that I there, there was only a short um, there was a short window, you know, to actually like achieve um, some significant things and put some things in place. Um, you know, obviously I, I wasn't there long enough to see those through. Um, you know, I don't wear as an organization is still going and, uh, you know, I hope that, you know, no one's heard from them. Have you heard anything since you left? Um, I think the last thing that I saw was that they're doing some, um, some, some trainings internally for, for managers and things of that nature. I don't have a lot of visibility, you okay. know, with that, but, um, 
I just knew that there was a lot of that, that there was a, a moment in time and that window was closing shortly, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like the, the place that we're at right now is we're just trying to put logs back on a fire, you know, to, mm-hmm. to keep to keep it going and to continue to fan those flames. And I think we have, we also have to see things more holistically because it's not just about police murdering us. It's about all of the issues that we face as a black community, you know, from the, the financial disparity in healthcare, education and things of that nature. And so it's like, how do we take a step back and see like if these things were actually put in place, then that would that would curtail or that would stop the police brutality that we see against our, our people. So I really believe that it's a both and for us. I feel like we have to mobilize um, obviously within these organizations that we work in, but we also have to be smart about how we build our own enterprises mm-hmm. and we, we have to be able to, to know how to invest and learn about real estate, learn about the stock market, learn about, uh, you know, uh, uh, just business in general. And how do we build the next Facebook? How do we build the next Nike? How do we create these organizations that can sustain themselves so that we're not having to go back to, you know, essentially, um, 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 uh, these systems, these structures, and some of these individuals that hold power that are not really ever going to change unless there is pressure that is put on them to change. Mm-hmm. I question. I question whether it ever will. Uh, I'm completely in agreement with you about building our own infrastructures and our own opportunities because uh, what I have witnessed, particularly over the past week, uh, the advocacy to protect what exists in order to for people to continue to make fractions of money and people are afraid black people are afraid to speak out i i mean look the amount of the amount of conversations i've had this week has been off the charts with people saying i want to help it's happening here too but i'm at risk if i say anything they cut our earning power off right they cut it away i can't contract with you cindy i can't we can't do this like you, we can't because they're going to take it away from us and then that group of people are working to try to gain more power so that they have control over black but black is done is what i'm hearing you say like well th- the way that i look at it is it's going to be a uh, it's going to be a continual cycle because I, I re- one of my favorite um, uh, people that that talks about financial literacy for the black community is Wall Street Trapper. And he says, if you allow them to feed you, then you allow them to starve you. And if we don't begin to take some type of um, control over our own matters um, and I understand playing the long game and being strategic in these organizations, but we also have to plant those seeds today so that we can see those trees over the next 10, 15, 20 yes. years. Um, and we might not see the full fruits of our labor, but as long as we're planting those seeds today, then, you know, it, it becomes a little bit stronger for our children and, and it becomes more normalized for them, not necessarily to be thinking about, I have to go work for so-and-so, but I own a company or I know that my uncle owns such and such and my auntie owns such and such and I can go work there. Right. You know? So when we get exposed to the, to the, to our own structures and we have our own networks and our own communities that puts us, I think in a better position to bargain with, you know, some of those, those oppressive powers mm-hmm. that we have, we still got to deal with cause they're here. But if we come in and we say, we got this type of leverage, y'all mm-hmm. gonna have to deal with this. Y'all gonna have to hear us on this mm-hmm. level. I think that's how we begin to begin to peel back and make some of that progress. Mm-hmm. Before we go to break, I just want to play this quick clip another clip i saw on instagram this week about uh, a black woman and what she's actually saying about divine feminine and where we are right now let's take a look at it and then we're going to go to break really quick 
So it's all making sense. Everything is fucking making sense. It's the power of divine feminine that these people have stolen. Today it's all making sense. Why are the divine feminine the most oppressed beings on the planet? They steal our energy to create false power, to create illusions. Then they suppress us, they make us suffer. Mother Africa, rise, rise and fight. It's the empathy of the planet. That is why evil still dwells. But it's about time we rise. We are rising. This is a feminine planet. We are sovereign. We don't need any dark magic. We are rising. It's time. Every tear that fall from my eye, I send the fire of the dragon to go unleash instant karma and consequences for the oppressors of Mother Gaia and the stealers of our feminine energy. Now I know why they bring their equality. One in every 500 African Americans in the U.S. suffers from sickle cell disease. One in three African-American blood donors is a match for patients with sickle cell. One, appointment to donate blood with the American Red Cross can help save a life. Will you be that one? Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood today to schedule an appointment at a location near you. COVID-19 are my income, my health, and my family. We were about to lose our home when we heard we might be eligible for homeowner assistance funds from the government. We called 1-877-894-HOME and a housing counselor stepped in. They talked to our lender and saved our home because falling on hard times does not have to mean losing your home. Federal funding details at WashingtonHAF.org. What's up, everybody? You know, me and Besa, my girl, we had to pull up to Market Street Shoes once again, y'all. And you know, we do this every season. We have to get the new shoes, the new boots, and this time, I even got a coat. Yeah, no, you did walk in without a coat. I really I'm did. I'm glad you found one. <laughs> but their boots were on point. Yes, the boots, the bags. I even grabbed a flannel. Yeah, you did. You know, and I was able to get some hats and everything. I was really impressed. And you know I was impressed because, of course, I got those white boots that you guys see me wearing everywhere these days. Yeah, no, I, I look at your white boots and I'm like, darn it, they only have one pair. Me and Basin wear the same size. Of course, every time we walk out with several bags in hand. Several bags and sometimes even a backpack, you guys. Make sure you check out Market Street Shoes. Yeah, please check them out. where they go, Basa? Ooh, 2232 Northwest Market Street, Seattle, Washington. Welcome back to Heartbeat. I am your host, Cindy Bright. Thank you for being with us this evening as we continue to have uh, an extended conversation from last week, an emotional show last week, where we here in Washington State uh, got to witness uh, another termination of a prominent Black woman, Dr. Karen Johnson, known as Dr. J, uh, who, uh, from my perspective, and I think many of us as Black women, uh, was taken down right at the two-year mark. It's classic what goes on with Black women. But um, 
it it has stirred our community. It has stirred us here in the Seattle area. It has reached across the country. The amount of phone calls and emails that I've gotten saying it's time. It's time for us to start addressing the elephant in the room. And joining me this evening as the author of the book, Addressing the Elephant in the Room, is Philip Jacobs. Uh, he is a consultant, a DEI consultant. He is also uh, the former executive director of Washington Employers for Racial Equity. And basically what we were just talking about um, are the same patterns, what exists in corporation organizations as it does state government. Um, and it is basically to silence us and to blame the black people for what isn't working, even though they've been operating like this for however many years. And in two years, we're expected to turn around, turn everything around, walk on eggshells, make sure, you know, I can't I can't replicate Dr. J and how she said it. It was powerful how she said it, but it's a real issue. And I'm going to continue to bring this conversation forward because we are at a racial reckoning again in this country. We are facing another election cycle where Democrats expect black women to get out and mobilize and vote and do all the things that we do to help keep them in office just to throw away student debt uh, relief and all the things that we need help with. And so I think where we are today is, you know, black women are done doing this and black women are mobilizing. And as Philip is saying, it's not just black women, it's black men, it's black people. I just happen to advocate for black women. I want to show a comment that came in because I want to talk about this next. Let's bring up the comment about um, what was said right before the break about, uh, and I can't see it quite. So um, can you see it, Philip, and read it off the teleprompter by any chance? Great show. We vote for people who look like us. And once they are in office, they will not speak out or stand up against things that continue to stand in our way. Uh, I'll see black politicians who have nothing to say when it comes to injustice. They seem to fear losing their seats if they stand up for the people they swore an oath to support. I think it's a powerful statement because I feel like that is, in fact, what has been transpired, although not all. I will say I want to appreciate the elected who did call and offer support uh, and trying to do the right things and trying to stand up for the right things. I think... Um, Many have gone silent uh, out of fear. I'm, I'm sure I've had Senator Mona Doss on. I've had Senator Representative Jesse Johnson, all who describe a culture of fear. So it's interesting to me that Dr. J gets fired for culture and what she's creating. And I just had elected officials on telling me that the Democrats themselves are creating a culture of fear. And so why is it that black women are the ones to pay the price for a culture that has already been established and punishing people if they speak up or say anything? And how are we ever going to progress the society if we don't address that elephant in the room? Philip, you know, when you worked in organizations as well, what was your observation of what happened to people who spoke out? Well, it's not necessarily where I saw people speaking out, um, but I think that there there is kind of like a there's definitely a fear factor, like how 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 black can I be or right or how much can I voice uh, like what's on my mind and what's on my heart and, and what I'm seeing. 
And um, again, I think that that comes back to um, people not feeling like they have power. And I, I just want to say something to the viewers right now that you do have power. You, you might not think that you have some in the position that you're in, but that power muscle has to be activated. If you don't use it, it's going to atrophy. And that's going to keep you in a place that's going to keep us in a place where we can't make progress. And so the only way to combat that is to use your voice, is to speak out, is to use the influence that you have. Now, some of us, you know, we might not be as, uh, I don't know, eloquent with words as others or, you know, but it's fine. Whatever your superpower that you have is, you might have the ear of the CEO. You might have the ear of the governor. You might have the ear of the person who's calling the shots. You might be the person that's calling the shots. Whatever it is, use your superpower. Use whatever influence resources that you have, because that's the only way that we're going to be able to chip at this. Um, but another, you know, long story made longer is that um, there there is fear in black culture because, I mean, who wants to lose their paycheck at the end of the day? Right. Who who wants to take that risk? and you not knowing um, how things are going to pan out for you. And that's why I just, I'm going to continue to harp on. We, we have to, I, I'm not saying that every black person has to be a business owner or an entrepreneur, but I do think that we do have to get to a place where we have control over our finances more. So we have other ways to earn a, a, a income and living um, so that we don't have to be in that fearful state because it's just going to continue to perpetuate. Anytime that you fear that somebody can take something from you, you're going to walk with trepidation. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be as bold as you normally could or you would if you knew that you was going to be solid and you knew that you had the next six to 12 months of, of income or, or, or whatever. So I would say that that's, that's a big part. And I, I think that also comes with the mindset of where are we at as a community? Um, and I don't have the answer to that, but I, I'm just like thinking high level and big picture is that if, if I knew that if I lost my my position today, I knew that Cindy had a company or a position that I could go to, mm -hmm. you know, or, or and you know, you lost your position. You know that you could go to, mm -hmm. you know, Dr. J or, or whoever. And so it's beginning to have that mindset. And even if we don't realize it in our generation, planting that seed in our children. Mm -hmm. So even though you might not be the one to start the company, Again, what superpower do you have? What resources do you have right now that can begin to pull down those layers and those barriers that keep us from being able to make progress? If you are an entrepreneur, how are you setting up your business structure so that you can bring on more people or that you can be a resource to the community? So, you know, I, I think it's, it's full circle. I think we just have to think we have to think systemic because we're we're wanting to dismantle these systemic systems. But we also have to think about what's going to be in place when those those systems are pulled down, what systems are we building in, in our in 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 their stead? And yes, that's powerful. Those are powerful words and advice to give our community. Back to your book, Philip. I want to give justice to there's a lot in your book. Will you talk more to our audience about some of kind of your key themes in the book? Definitely. So the book, it, it centers on um, different folks from different. The, the main character is Derek Blaine. He's a, 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 a younger black executive um, who um, he, he works for a company that is a, a major like energy conglomerate. And he just got um, he just got hired um, in, in the role of global. I can't even remember the, the full title I gave him in the book, but it's like global uh, DEI executive or whatever, uh, vice president. And so um, he's 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 been charged to give the keynote at the having the race conversation summit. Uh, he's the keynote speaker. And so he so one key thing about uh, his situation is he's been making waves at that company 
for the last 18 months where he's been putting out fires. He's been setting up new systems and he's been too effective. And because of that, it has rubbed members of the leadership team the wrong way. The CEO is in his corner, but the CEO is also influenced by those that are on the leadership team. So right now, Derek is thinking about, am I even going to have a job, um, you know, come Monday or Tuesday or whenever I get back to work and I'm here and I have to deliver this keynote address at this having the race conversation summit. So right when Derek gets there, he's already met with microaggressions. He gets to the front, uh, to the concierge. And uh, there's a younger white woman who questions him and says, I need to see your ID before I can let you in. And mind you, his picture is like plastered Mm -hmm. in the hotel or the conference center. um, And he's the keynote speaker. And then he sees some white older white guy get escorted and given the royal treatment, who's just like a regular attendee to the summit. So there's that part. But also Derek has his own challenges in terms of like just like having conversations about racial equity. Like he does this thing where he he protects the the white man when one of his colleagues uh, gets on his case about showing racist behavior. So Derek kind of tries to come to the rescue of this white guy who he feels is wrong, but it's like, you know, you, you ain't got to go that hard on them, you know, that type of thing. And that's something that we do as black people, like you said, is protect, would you say protect thy white man mm-hmm. or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's, he's, he's, he's having to go through his own experiences um, around navigating race, racism in, in, um, in, in, in racial dynamics. And I think because it, it, it resonates so much, um, I think with our, with, with real life, because we, we've dealt with so much trauma in this nation mm-hmm. and we've internalized so much racism. I know that you and Dr. J were having that conversation even last week about, you know, house Negroes and field Negroes and, and light skin and dark skin and all those different things. Out, even uh, on top of the racism that we have to deal with from folks that don't look like us, we still deal with it in our own community mm-hmm. and we have to face that and combat that, you know. So there, there's a lot of layers to this book. One thing that I'm really... Um, excited about um, that has um, really picked up a lot of steam is there's a chapter, I think it's chapter seven, which is called playing the game. And so one of the things that we're doing with this book is it's going to also be a board game. We're releasing a board game to go with it next year. And so there's a chapter in there where the players or the, the attendees of the conference are playing the board game and they're dealing with the different topics of racism and conversations about that. Um, there's a, there's a white man playing with the Asian woman and an Asian woman playing with the Pacific Islander and a, um, a, a Latino gentleman. They're all like sitting at the table and they're having these conversations while they're playing the game. And so I'm trying to hit it from different angles and mind you, I'm a black man, so I'm speaking from a black perspective, but I try to do my best to represent the different viewpoints of other racial groups and identities so that we can hopefully get to this place where, you know, not to be cliche, but we see each other as the human race. Cause that's at the end of the day, like we're much more powerful together than we are apart. And I feel like that's where the, the, the layers of division have come to break us apart. You know, even from white folks, you know, black folks and white folks, like there was a, there was a clear uh, intention behind trying to divide uh, poor white people from black people so that they didn't unite and begin to overturn a lot of these, these, you know, these wicked systems that we face. Um, and so that's how I'm, I'm coming at it in the book to give, hopefully plant that seed, like, um, Again, not to be cliche, because I know there's a lot of stuff that we got to face, but it's like, man, how do we get past these things so that we can see each other truly as, you know, uh, God's sons and daughters and we can move accordingly to, 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 to make things right? 
humanity is what you're talking about, right? Like how Dr. J last week, uh, I started to lose it inside in like the last 10 minutes of the show because she started talking from a place of humanity. Uh, and even with, you know, when she described the, what it felt like for her and she described um, having her son sit on her left knee and she was pregnant and her husband had a noose around his neck and they had just kicked the box out from underneath and her son was witnessing this so as to not have her son ever speak out because they get to see the consequences. It was a powerful analogy and it is what is happening. And I think what you just described, Philip, um, and I, what she described is version 2.0 of the plantation. And we have to talk about this because even though we believe, some people believe that we have progressed society, have we really? We're st the same behaviors are still occurring, even though people may not connect it back to the past, but to your point about what, like within our own communities, right? When, when, when we can, when we have a black law firm take down another black woman, like another black woman said to me today, how do they even sleep at night? Like, I mean, I think it's a powerful question, like pitting us against each other. I mean, it's happening. I, I saw this post today because um, we're just closing out AAPI month and we're going into LGBTQ month and a, a person, I don't remember their name off the top of my head, but they laid out some powerful things about what's happening between racial communities where we pit each other against each other. Uh, and we feel that we have to instigate an investigation when we're unhappy with somebody, right? That to me is I don't even have the words for it because why can't we just have civil conversations together and work through restorative justice measures of trying to fix what's happening both within the black community and then within, if we can't even fix it between us, how are we ever going to think that the white man is going to get it and want to invest into restorative justice measures to make things work better for us? Do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, so I, I feel like I, I try not to like lean into like either extreme because I, I, I feel like, again, talking about like the trauma that we've experienced as a people, uh, I can't truly speak on the motives of somebody else, you know, doing those things. We do know like throughout history though that we have been pitted against each other and other communities. And I think we know the strategic reasons behind that. But I also do think that there is restorative work that's happening, even though that might not be the thing that's publicized most times. You know, I feel like there are conversations that are going on and I feel like there are organizations um, and individuals that are pushing that, 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 um, that discourse so that we can have spaces where we can um, hopefully, even though we might have difference of opinion, begin to come together and, and think through how we can progress forward. I don't think that that's the thing that that mainly gets published and what we see. Um, but I think that there's so much trauma and so much hurt around racism um, and um, the, the the outcomes and the elements that we've seen that it's hard. Like when, when whenever that wound gets touched, it's going to bleed everywhere, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think really, um, I think to your point about 
the community, um, I, I think that we just we, we have to get so laser focused on our own well-being as a people together. Like, how do we heal together? How do we progress together? And not even so much worry about um, what outside entities or uh, other folks, you know, that that are not of our, you know, of, uh, you know, to be to be frank of our skin color and our experience. Um, what they're going to do to help us, because I think that that puts us in a place where we're continuing to look for these outside resources and entities that over historically we have seen just, you know, they don't care. And I, I can't even necessarily fault them for not caring because it, think about it from this standpoint, like if you was in a position and you were winning and you had privilege, would you be willing to give that up automatically mm -hmm. or so quickly? So, no. So I feel like we we have to have the mindset of how do we how do we how do we come together? How do we heal? Not to say that there's not responsibility on on on, on the government's part and on big businesses part and these other institutions. And we should continue to apply the pressure there. But I think there needs to be more focus on how are we doing as a community? How are we helping mm -hmm. each other? How are we supporting? Did I buy your book? Right. Mm -hmm. Did you buy my T-shirt? Right. Mm -hmm. Did you give me a, a platform to speak? Did you you know, did I set you up for this, this, this play to do this thing? You know, and when we do that and we do that on a consistent basis regularly and we hold each other accountable, that's going to create a ripple effect in a wave that those governments, those institutions, they're going to have to pay attention to because they're like, man, they, they you know, that mm -hmm. those five fingers, when they come together, that's a fist. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we got to contend with. And that's when we I think we begin to see uh, more you know, negotiation mm -hmm. and, and, and um, uh, the agendas that we need to push forward for our well-being on that level begin to, to take root. Mm -hmm. Thank you for uh, that's a very uh, brilliant description of what uh, is necessary for change. Let me say we just have a few more minutes left here in the show. There's a couple things I wanted to make sure I highlight. I want to show you just first. Off, let me comment. You know, when I decided to move uh, this show here to Converge Media for Black Media because Black Media matters. Let me show you some headlines of what's going on about other Black women across the country. We'll recognize our Vice President and some of the things that are being said about her. And I want to highlight this because I think this is important to see some of these different narratives about the question marks that are coming up about her. This is, you know, they have a problem with her. Let's show uh, a couple of the other ones. Um, she gets all this criticism. Like this is a very common, I wanna show how common it is to put, when we think about, you know, Vice President Harris and the position that she's in, I mean, we don't know what goes on in there, but if it's anything like what goes on in state government and local government, you know, is she being silenced? You know, is she being kept in the background? Um, it gives the press an opportunity to feed and think the worst of her. And why is it that we always have to go into the worst of people instead of seeing what's good with people? I think this is an important time for us to be reflecting on this because we are headed into yet another election cycle. I also want to highlight another couple of books that I think would be important for our community to read. Uh, besides my own, um, there is, uh, I'm going to highlight this book. This book is called Black Zoshin, and it's written by an author, Teresa Robinson. I hope that you can see it well. I can't do it justice to explain what's in this book, but she gives a very raw account about what it means to be a black person and a black woman 
uh, in this country, in organizations. She's wrote some great poetry. She's has this whole glossary in the back of this book that breaks down the code switching or the terms that are being used in organizations that actually mean something else. I think it's a brilliant book. Uh, I have not met Teresa Robinson. I have read this book twice and I think it is worthy of a read. The other book I wanna highlight that I think is important and I think it's actually at play here is a book by a man named Stephen Phillips. He's a Stanford research uh, professor. It's called Brown is the New White and it is about the voting power in this country. And it is powerful, some of the data that he breaks down and shows that kind of what we see happening right now is because voting power has shifted and he projects by when this will all have completely turned. And I think it's important for us, all of our community, brown, white, black, that to understand what's actually happening because we do have the power and the more we utilize this power and stop putting these people in office or reelecting them who can't who won't uphold us they can stay in terms for 10 years or worry about their next election cycle but the black woman comes in and gets two years this is an important time everybody to start thinking about what this all means because the first people that they're going to reach out to across the country to mobilize and work 90 hours a week are black people. It's our vote that's putting them in office and we should pay attention to this. You know, last week I had a whole nother conversation. Uh, my son is a millennial and one of his friends uh, about your age, Philip, and I were talking and he said, I asked him about what he thinks about politics and I asked him if he voted. And the conversation I had with him was almost uh, for me to listen to him talk about your generation of how um, they are abstaining from voting because they see what has happened to their parents. They see what we still live in. And they said, we're done. We should just let the system burn. Now, I've always advocated, but if you don't vote, then the vote is actually going to the other person. And now I have a huge question mark in my mind because I'm like, Maybe they're right. You know, I hear all these black women are all saying, we're not doing this anymore. We're going to stop being those people. We're going to stop being used and abused and then kicked to the curb. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I used to have that same mindset. Like, you know, I felt like, you know, politics was all crooked and there was no way to really establish change uh, with the the current uh, system. As I've seen, I guess, as I've, I've um gotten older and just seen a little bit more of how things work. I think that it's important for us to become more knowledgeable about politics and, and get an understanding because um, whether whether we like it or not, the system that we know it as is what it is right now. And so we have to figure out until we can change it, we got to figure out how to work within it and, and get it to serve the purposes that we need it to. And we're not trying to do, we're not trying to uh, do anything wrong or, or, you know, do anything underhanded. We just want the same access and opportunities that other other groups in this nation have. Right. Yeah. So my mindset is that I think first we got to become knowledgeable about politics. We can't turn over and, and, and turn a, a deaf ear to it and, and be blind to it. We do need black politicians. We need black governors. We need black presidents. We need black mayors, elected officials and not just black, but we also need people that are just I think good people that are for the people that are in these positions, whether you white, black, purple, green, orange, whatever. And then I also think that we as a people, we need to establish our own voting block. Um, this comes from the 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 um, the the um, 
the methodology and the philosophy of Dr. Claude Anderson, where he talked about how, um, you know, black, essentially black people need to learn how to either rent politicians or own politicians. You know, essentially that's what other groups do. And so we need to begin to think about the power of our dollar. And once we get organized and think about what are the things that we can get on the same page about as a people and say, these are the things that we want to see happen. And that way we can form a strong lobby because every other group has a lobby, corporations, organizations, racial groups. Many of uh, many of them outside of us have uh, a lobby. And so we need to establish a black lobby that will push through our agendas and the things that we want to see. And if that doesn't happen, I think then we have the structure in place to say, nope, you're not going to be in office this time, buddy. Um, you don't have access to this community no more, you know, because we know how you get down. And so I think it, it comes from being knowledgeable about the political process and we, we got to engage in it. And I'm not telling people to vote or not to vote, but you need to be smart about either why you're voting or why you're not voting. I appreciate you saying that. Before we close the show out, I have a couple of things I want to say to close it out. I first want to thank you for being on here. Fastest hour of the day is to come on air and have this kind of a conversation. It's powerful. I appreciate you and the work you're doing out in the community and your book. I hope our audience buys addressing the elephant in the room. It's on Amazon. No, it's not. It's it's on rebelfirm.com. Rebelfirm.com. Okay. All right. Uh, He's a rebel to do that. A couple of things I want to say to our community before I close out tonight. I actually want to read to you something about restorative justice because I believe that is necessary right now. I first want to say uh, I believe we, the state has wronged Dr. J um, and I believe we need to put restorative justice in place. And let me read to you just something uh, that was sent to me today that I think is worthy of reading. Um, Restorative justice requires that we examine the harmful impact of individual behaviors and or systemic injustices and only then determines what can be done to repair that harm while holding the person or people who caused the harm accountable for their actions. I'm saying that and I'm giving a public invitation to Governor Jay Inslee to come onto this show on a heartbeat and to have a conversation to our community without talking points and unscripted so that we can talk about what we can do to restore justice in the state of Washington to make things right. My last thing I will say to you is what you see in me exists in you. I am not who you think I am. You are who you think I am. Thank you for joining this evening. Converge Media produces culturally relevant content for black and urban audiences. Our coverage is raw, transparent, and objective, praised by community leaders, government officials, and residents. Converge Media today via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at Converge Media.